Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to begin at verse 13 this morning. Over the course of several weeks, we've been examining Paul's evangelistic and gospel ministry on the island of Cyprus. Um, we pretty much spent three weeks looking at chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. What a spectacular section of Scripture, as all Scripture is spectacular, isn't it? It's amazing when you just stop and read it and study it and apply it. We've been doing that. We've been looking at that first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, and uh, it's been quite extraordinary. Last week, we closed out that section uh, with the conversion of the governor or lead senator of the island of Cyprus. His name was Sergius Paulus. Uh, that was pretty amazing to watch him give his heart over to Christ, to receive Christ by faith. He became a believer. Uh, this week, we will begin to study the second phase of Paul's evangelistic church planting journey, which took place in the region called Galatia. Uh, you have Galatians in your Bible. When Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he was addressing all of the churches in the region of Galatia. And so we're going to look at the second phase of this first missionary journey, which took place in Galatia. Now, I'd like to mess around a little bit, maybe set the stage by putting a question out there to you guys. You don't have to all answer. You know, it's kind of rhetorical, but I want you to do some pondering, some thinking this morning. We've already been challenged to think, right? We've heard these great testimonies of God's Word. God's Word is amazing that we belong to God and so on and so forth. We heard the reading of the Word. We sang songs about the truth. We have heard so much, and we've already been thinking, but I'd like to put this question before you. How important is the preaching of God's Word, biblical preaching to the church today? Let's just think about it for a moment. How important is it? How, what comes to mind? How important is it to you? Is it vitally important to the church? Is it somewhat important, partially important to the church? Is it not important to the church? Believe it or not, when you ask this question, you put this question before churchmen, um, you receive all sorts of different answers. You get a lot of different opinions. You get a lot of different answers. Some say very quickly that it's vitally important that the church cannot continue on its mission or do anything or even be a church without biblical preaching. Some would say that. They would go that far. I would be in that camp. And then some say that preaching of God's word is somewhat important. It's partially important. There are other things that we do, maybe in the gathering, that are equally important, if not more important than the preaching of God's word. So the preaching of God's word is important, but it's not vitally important. It's one thing that we do, and it's somewhat important. Believe it or not, there are some that say it's not important at all. You know? Liturgical things are important. Reciting creeds and, and these things are important. Singing a zillion songs is important. You know, there's a zillion other things to do in the service. Videos and testimonies. Testimonies. Believers' testimonies. Man, those are the things that are vitally important. Preaching the Word of God is not, not all that important. All these other things are vitally important. 
Well, let me give you a handful of verses that show what the Word of God actually does. These things will help, these verses will help to make clear why the preaching of the Word of God is so vitally important to the church. Number one, the Word of God exposes sin. It exposes sin. It points to our sin. Hebrews 4.12 says, uh, For the Word of God is living and active. It's alive. It's active in our lives, and it's shorter than any two-edged shorter. <laughs> it's pretty long, actually. It's sharper, let me get that right, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's where it exposes sin. It goes in, we hear it, it goes in, it brings, it strikes our consciences, it strikes our hearts, and it brings sin to mind. The Word of God is holy, we are not, bam, when we hear it, we begin to think of our sin. We begin to think of other sin. We begin to think of sin in the world. It's vitally important because it exposes sin. What happens when you go to a church service, you gather with the assembly, and there's no preaching of God's Word? How is sin being dealt with? It's not being dealt with. It's not being brought to the forefront of people's minds or brought before the assembly, is it? No, not at all. Sin is allowed to continue, to grow, to make a deeper manifestation in the lives of the saints or in the lives of those who come, wreaking havoc, bringing about destruction. Number two, the Word of God gives light and direction. Psalm said 109 uh, verse 5, Psalm 109, verse 5, your word is what? We know this verse. Some of you gals in here, it might be your favorite verse. I've seen a lot of women on Facebook put it up there. Boy, this is what the word of God is to me. What is it? So the word is a lamp to my feet, and it's a light to my path. We have a world that we live in, that we function in, that we move to and fro in, that is consumed with and by darkness. This is a dark world. Because it's filled with dark people, sinners. <coughs> the word of God is actually a lamp. It's a guide. It lights our path. Now what happens if you don't have the preaching, the biblical preaching of God's word, biblical preaching in the church when the assembly comes together? You, you don't have the lamp. People remain in darkness. They grope about, trying to get from point A to point B in their lives, and they have no light, no lamp, no guide. Number three, the Word of God causes maturation, maturity. It matures us in the Lord. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, all Scripture is breathed out, breath breathed out by God. When God breathes, there's power, there's life in his breath. It's breathed out by God and profitable for what? Teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be what? Complete, equipped for every good work. What does that mean? Mature. What happens when you don't have the preaching of God's word, even, even if you reduce it down or if you eliminate it, what happens to the body of Christ, to the people of God, when you don't have that? Mama. That's 
Mama. They remain as babies. They do not grow up into the faith. They do not mature. Begin to see how important it is. Number four, the word of God does what? What does it do? It sanctifies. It makes us like Jesus. It makes us like Jesus. Jesus prayed this in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 17. What? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. What's he saying? Keep them in thy word, O oh God, and make them like your blessed son. That's what he says. You see, the preaching of the word, it sanctifies us. The spirit takes it and he takes the word and he applies it and transforms us, takes this heart of stone, turns it into a heart of flesh. We begin to submit and yield to the cause of Christ. It sanctifies us. We become like Jesus. Number five, the word of God perpetuates spiritual life. Psalm 119.25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. The way of salvation is found in the word of God in the Bible. If you're not preaching the Bible, people are not hearing the way of salvation. And the saints are not being built up and brought to maturity in their salvation. The word of God perpetuates spiritual life. Exposes sin, gives light and direction, brings us to maturity, sanctifies us, makes us like Jesus. It perpetuates spiritual life. And the list can go on and on and on and on. I love what MacArthur wrote about the importance of the preaching of God's word in terms of mission and revival. I quote, Biblical preaching has been the catalyst of every great revival in church history. Which reminds me that if you're seeking to bring about revival in your community or in your church and you're, and you're not going to the source, which is the word of God, it's, it's a few level. It begins with biblical exposition. He says, the church fathers took the baton from the apostles and through their preaching, Christianity conquered, conquered the Roman Empire. The preaching of the great reformers, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Zwingli, and Latimer brought the light of the truth to the church um, after centuries of darkness. The powerful preaching of John Owen, John Bunyan, Richard Baxter, Thomas Manton, Thomas Brooks, a bunch of Thomases, Thomas Watson, and Jeremiah Burroughs, among many others, fired the Puritan revival in 17th century England. John Wesley, John Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards led the 18th century Great Awakening. The 19th century was blessed with the preaching of Spurgeon, Parker, McLaren, White, and White. Perhaps the church today, listen, family, friends, church, perhaps the church today knows little of revival because it knows little of strong biblical doctrinal preaching. The New Testament itself stresses the importance of biblical preaching in several places. Jesus told a prospective follower to go and preach the kingdom of God everywhere. Luke 9, 60. Jesus commanded his disciples to preach the gospel throughout the world. Mark 16, 15. Paul told his 
young protege, Timothy, to preach the word in season and out of season, 2 Tim 4, 2. Preach the word when people want to hear it and preach it when they don't. Preach, preach, preach. Church elders must be able to preach and teach sound doctrine from the word. That's a prerequisite. You can't be an elder if you can't teach 1 Timothy 5, 17, Titus 1, 9 to 13. I think it's pretty clear we could go on and on and on with this. But the New Testament alone stresses the importance of biblical preaching. And this morning, we're going to begin to examine the first recorded sermon in the book of Acts of the Apostle Paul. Who is, in my humble opinion, hands down the greatest preacher the Christian church has ever seen or produced. I say he's above Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, everything downstream from him. Now, this is not to say that Paul had never preached before. Paul had been preaching the word of God. He'd been preaching the Bible, the scriptures, the truth, ever since he regained his sight which came to him three days after his conversion. We've studied all this in the book of Acts. He preached in Damascus, Arabia, uh, Jerusalem, and in Antioch. For reasons unbeknownst to us, Luke has left out the content of Paul's previous or prior sermons. We've seen him and we've heard about him preaching and going into synagogue, but we have not really been exposed to any of the content of his messages, but not here in Acts 13. If you've been with us over the months, you, you know that we've been afforded the great privilege, the wonderful privilege, to have been able to study the sermons of great preachers like Peter, Stephen, and Philip. We've looked at these guys in the book of Acts, their sermons. Now, I've been blessed exponentially by their sermons, especially Stephen's, which happens to be one of my favorites. Paul's sermon in Acts 13 is very similar to the sermons of Peter, Stephen, and Philip. They all cover the same basic points and material. They have the same sort of structure and layout. The best thing about them is that they all ultimately point to Jesus Christ, who is to be the point of every sermon. How many sermons have you heard as you've attended church over the years that never mention Jesus? And fail. point of all scripture, the point of all biblical teaching, the point of the scripture with the story, the narrative, contains a narrative of redemption. The point is Jesus. If your sermon doesn't have Jesus in it, we're in trouble. If all scripture points to Jesus and you're not pointing to Jesus, what are you pointing to? Well, this sermon is saturated with the gospel. As the other men's sermons were saturated. According to the New Testament, a sermon we're about to begin to look at and study is the longest of all of Paul's sermons. You can see little sermons of his throughout the rest of the book of Acts and then in his epistles and other places. But this particular sermon is not only his first recorded one in Scripture, it's also his longest. It includes an introduction. It has a section where Paul divides kind of history and the word of God, and then it has an application. And altogether, it spans over a whopping 31 verses. It's pretty good. 
Luke recorded these things for us as a historical note, but it's amazing that he went ahead and recorded the majority of this sermon. He wrote it all down, 31 verses. That's a massive section. And without further ado, I'd like to pray and then get to work, as if we haven't been at work. That's the assumption, right? We have a lot of ground to cover. We have quite the foundation to build before we actually even get to Paul's sermon. things that we have to cover. Father, I'm pumped up for you. I pray that I would stay pumped up. God, you've set before us life and death. We remain in sin, we remain in death. We come to Christ, submit to him, give our hearts to him, we have life. That's what the gospel is a message of. I pray that these things would come through your word today, Lord. Help me as I preach, help these folks to listen. Not just to be hearers, but to be doers. May they apply the truth that they hear this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Alright, we're picking up in 13. That's where we left off last week. Chapter 13, Acts 13, verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas left Paphos shortly after Sergius Paulus was saved. They determined that it was time for them to move on, to other territories to preach the gospel. They were on a missionary church planting journey. You can't stay in one place for very long when you're out doing that. They determined it was time to move on. They took a boat from Paphos and sailed about 150 to 200 miles north of Perga, which was in Pamphylia. Perga was situated along the Cestrus River about 15 miles inland. Paul and Barnabas more, like, more than likely sailed right up the river to the city. It was perched along the river, and you just stayed in the Mediterranean and then took the river. The river back in these days was large enough to take a fairly large boat up to the city, so it's believed that that's the way that they got up to the city. Interestingly, the place they left, the place of focus over the last three, four weeks, Paphos had a very large temple called the Temple of Venus. Mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Venus was the Greek and Roman goddess of love. Pointed out how the people of Cyprus engaged in all sorts and forms of debauchery and sexually depraved and sexually driven <coughs> worship of this goddess. We were sort of marveling at the fact that God had sent missionaries to preach the gospel in a community like this. So often we think that God doesn't want to do anything with people like that. How wrong are we? We are no different. Our sins might look differently. We are sinners. We are just as wretched. Now there was a, also a temple in Perga. It was erected to the goddess Diana, who was also known as Artemis. The temple of Diana in Perga is not to be confused with the temple of Diana in Ephesus, which was much larger, much more ornate. But we have 
Paul and Barnabas traveling from one community that is steeped in pagan religion to another. Such is the mercy and grace of God. Once they landed in Perga, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. As soon as they got to Perga, they got bounced. It took off. The reasons for his departure are unclear. Luke really doesn't record much for us about them. He doesn't give us a clear-cut answer. But I'd like to put forth six potential reasons. These are a bit speculative. In fact, they're completely speculative. And some might be thinking, why would we even cover these things if they're not for sure? Because there was a motive by why he left. And if we flesh these things out, we might be able to get to the bottom of it to some degree. But I believe each thing will be helpful to us. Six reasons that he might have left. Number one, John may have objected to Paul's itinerary. Obviously, Cyprus was Barnabas' home territory. We learned that back in the early parts of Acts, I think two or three. Because John was related to Barnabas, he was his nephew. We might assume that he, too, had roots in this island, or at least friendly family connections, some sort of connection point there. When the trip went beyond this familiar territory, John may have balked. He might have said, ah, we don't need to go up in this area. We need to go back to the place where I grew up. Could be. Number two, John may have become homesick. Now, just keep in mind that these are reasons that various scholars and theologians put forth. That's where I got these things. Number two, John may have become homesick. Mama! He did follow Paul and Barnabas from Jerusalem to Antioch. And now he returns to Jerusalem. This may be a clue that he longed for home. He'd been away for a little bit. He'd left with them to go up to the other Antioch. We'll talk about that in a moment. And stayed with them there. And he traveled to Cyprus and then up to Perga. Maybe he was homesick. Have you ever felt that homesickness? Boy, I've been reading the biography of a simple biography, an abbreviated version of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And when he was a young lad away at school, that's how they basically did school back then. You would roll them and send them. If it was more than a few miles away from your house, they stayed there on the campus. And boy, did he talk about his homesickness. He actually called it a disorder. I can't remember what it was. But he longed to be home. And when his dad would come to visit him on occasion, it would kill him. Because his dad had to leave and go back home. Which was... Six miles away. Right? You're thinking, six miles, dude. Right? No. Back then, it was horse or walking. No moped scooters, cabs. Maybe it was homesick. Number three, maybe. John may have become frightened. The area they were headed was known to be riddled with bandits. John may have been frightened by the prospect of getting beat up and robbed. Moreover, given Paul's track record, even in Paphos, conflict with political um, entities was inevitable. Well, you don't want to cross the government. Paul seemed to do that on a regular basis. Crossing the government would mean certain imprisonment and beatings and maybe even death. Maybe he was scared. Number four, Paul may have contracted... Not John, but Paul may have contracted malaria. Some have suggested that the reason Paul and Barnabas bypassed Perga for uh, the city in Antioch was for the higher altitude and a more agreeable climate for recovering from malaria. A lot of guys seem to think this is why they didn't stay in Perga. 
Indeed, Paul says in Galatians 4.13 that he came to them the first time because of a bodily illness. Perhaps John was trying to avoid getting that devastating disease. Oh, man, he's infected. I don't want to play. I'm out. Number five, John may have objected to Paul's leadership. Up to the conversion of Sergius Paulus, Barnabas was clearly the leader. He introduced Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem. He verified the work in Antioch. He recruited Paul to help with the work. He gets top billing both on their mission of mercy in Jerusalem and their evangelistic tour on Cyprus. Suddenly, and from here on out, Paul not only changes his name, but takes the lead over Barnabas. John may have been jealous for his uncle when he took the back seat to Paul. Number six, John may have objected to Paul's preaching. Come on, Pastor Phil, he was preaching the gospel. Hold your horses. As Paul's message of grace turns towards Gentile audiences, it becomes clear that he will not require them to be circumcised. This has, a, uh, has profound implications that will fester into a serious confrontation in chapter 15 of Acts. John may have objected to, to uh, Paul's sort of Jesus plus nothing equals everything mantra and preaching style. You can't be telling them that it's just Jesus. They've got to become Jewish first. They've got to get snipped. I ran from that gospel. Snipped. You happy at that? I mean, think about it. These Jews were steeped in legalism. These guys were Jewish. Maybe he just objected to this Jesus plus nothing equals everything mantra. These messages, these sermons about the grace of God. I suspect that number five is the most likely reason. I think that John objected to Paul's leadership. I like what Sproul wrote. He wrote, we tend to think of the first century Christian community as a group of plastic saints. People who never had disagreements amongst themselves. But they were no different from Christians in every age. When an organization undergoes a management change, people get nervous. The security that they have felt can become jeopardized by new management. As can the familiarity of routine. Difficulties abound when a subordinate is placed over those to whom he or she used to report. In Acts, it is very clear if we look at the text closely, that from this moment on, Paul is the one in charge of the missionary journey, not Barnabas. He says, we hear no complaint from Barnabas about his loss in status, but obviously there was a complaint from John or John Mark. John Mark, John did not appreciate that Paul had been given the leadership position over his uncle Barnabas. Pretty, pretty good. Whatever the case may be, the bottom line is John bounced and left them hanging. Now this serves as a tremendous reminder to us, his leaving us. It is so critical that we honor and live out our obligations and that we maintain short accounts with others. We need to be open and honest with one another so that we can avoid these types of situations. 
Paul and Barnabas depended on John. He played a vital role in the ministry. His departure resulted in both men having to assume additional responsibilities, which may have become burdensome to the two. All because of what? Jealousy? Misplaced family zeal? Fear? Friends, we should not allow these differences, our differences and or desires to create divisions like this. Divisions that lead us to abandon our brothers and sisters in ministries. John's issue probably could have been worked out. We don't know if he told Barnabas and Paul why he was leaving. According to Luke, it would appear that he never got that far. Don't you think Luke, the historian, would have included the reason why? So that we wouldn't be left to speculate? I don't think that John gave him a reason. Peace! It looks as if he just said, I'm gone. Peace out. See you later. That's what it looks like. The fact of the matter is that Paul was highly impacted by what John did. So much so that he, when John Mark tried to come back into this leadership fold, Paul rejected him, said, no, he abandoned us. He's not coming back. He left the team, man. No. And then Barnabas said, he's cool now, though, dog. And what did he say? No, he's not. Then what happened? Barnabas and Paul. I believe that Paul was offended, was hurt, was disappointed by what happened because of how he responded to it later on. It's pretty clear. Which leads me to believe that the reason why John left, maybe he did tell them the reason, is I don't approve of him leaving you, Barnabas. This is wrong. You're clearly the leader. How offensive would that be to you if you were the God that put you forward and Barnabas yield to you and then, and then you got the, the chatter of the nephew. This is wrong. This is an injustice. You shouldn't be leading him. It ought to be the way around. You killed Christians for crying out loud back just a few years ago. What is going on here? No circumcision. Well, Paul was hurt. He was so impacted by what happened. Enough to say, no, he can't come back. And, oh, you're going to take up his stand for him. And then I guess we can't work this thing out. So maybe we ought to part ways, Barnabas. And that happens a little later on. The good news is, though, that fractured relationships like this can be, through the grace of God, reconciled and healed. That is the case with this instance. Paul and John became reconciled later on. In 2 Timothy 4.11 Paul describes John, John Mark as being very useful to his ministry. What does that mean? It means at some point before he came back and served with them or alongside them that they were reconciled. They had a conversation. You know what I think happened? I think John Mark matured. I think he matured and he looked back on his abandoning them out of fear or whatever the reason for it. I was a Nimrod back then. And I believe that I should have held the course and stayed with you men. I believe he was repentant. And whatever happens, they were reconciled. It's a beautiful thing. It's great. But we shouldn't neglect 
transparency and openness with one another. Just because God has the power through his grace and mercy to come back around later on and fix things, we shouldn't act foolishly now. We should still be open and transparent with one another. When somebody stabs you, don't stab back. Tell them what happened. Man, you cut me, dog. Cut me deep. I said hello to you. I know, I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, we get blown out over the simplest of things, don't we? Sometimes there's a serious thing. No, you know what we'd rather do? Instead of dealing with it, being transparent and open, we'd rather just, ooh, I can't believe it. Ah! And just walk away, and, you know, and become this beast. Talk about it with others. Can you believe what you did to me? Blasted me. Well, go reconcile to him. Nope. Not giving him a chance. Let him simmer. We must work hard. And it is hard work. And it is not easy. <laughs> it's not easy to go to someone who jacked you up. Oh, it's easier to talk about them behind the back. It's easier to be angry. Well, that just caters to the flesh, doesn't it? We gotta work hard. We gotta work hard keeping short accounts and working through our differences with others, settling these matters. You need to never forget, church, that the gospel ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. We heard it read. Great Corinthians passage. God works through the gospel to redeem and reconcile lost sinners to himself. That's the heart of the gospel. Christians are recipients of reconciliation. And Christians are also ministers of reconciliation. We are to share the gospel with unbelievers, hoping that they will become reconciled to God. We are to extend mercy and forgiveness to those who hurt us so that we can be reconciled to them. We are to apologize and pursue reconciliation with those in whom we hurt. We are to act as mediators, seeking to bring reconciliation to warring couples and friends. That is what it means to be a gospel reconciler. And if you are in Christ, that is who you are. You are a minister of the gospel, which is a message of reconciliation between sinners and God, reconciliation between men and men, and so on and so forth. Let's look at verse 14. It says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down and went in kicked back. Paul and Barnabas simply passed through Perga and went on to Antioch in Pisidia. There are several theories as to why they didn't stay in Perga. Some think that Paul contracted malaria, I talked about it, while on the way to Perga, and he decided to head for higher ground. Perga sits just above sea level, where the climate is hot and dry, making a fever, you know, stricken malaria patient extremely miserable. You've seen the movies, the war movies, you know? Can you imagine in this hot, muggy climate, how bad it would be just to be streaked with a 105 degree fever? 
be nasty. The city in Antioch, on the other hand, was situated at about 3,600, actually at 3,600 feet above sea level, making the climate much cooler. It was up in the mountains. Paul was sick with malaria. The travel that the city in Antioch must have been horrible, must have nearly killed him. The city in Antioch was another hundred miles away, and the road to it was a winding, death-defying route through the Taurus Mountains. The Taurus Mountains were notorious for robber bands, for the robber bands that infested them. There were robbers and bandits all throughout these mountains for centuries and centuries and centuries. Those brigands who had plagued Alexander the Great and Augustus Caesar were still unsubdued in Paul's time. On the other side of the Taurus Mountains, there was this river valley, or what they called the floodplains, of the Cestrus and Eurymedon rivers. These rivers would swell up instantly and flood out, like you've seen this uh, video footage in like Phoenix and Arizona, and these parts of Arizona, where these flash floods happen. Well, that's how it was down in this area. So once you got through the mountains, if you made it through there, if you didn't fly off a cliff, you know, donkey drop, right? If you didn't get robbed or beaten to death, left for the Good Samaritan to come by and say, I got you. If you made it over and into the floodplains, there's a chance you could get washed away. Can you imagine traveling that as a healthy person now add malaria to it? I can't even go from the couch to the bathroom with the flu. If I do, she hears about, you know? She's like, oh, he got up. She hears it from the other room, he just got up. You know? Imagine traveling this. When Paul wrote, I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, 2 Corinthians 11.26, he may have well had this journey in mind. I think he's talking about this particular incident when he went from Perga to the city of Antioch. Hey, the mountains and the, the floodplains and the robbers. Some think they moved on from Perga because it wasn't promising for evangelism. Perga was cut off from the north by the Taurus Mountains, making it less of an influenced place by Roman and Greek culture and therefore less open-minded to ideas. Might not have been a very good place to evangelize. And then some think that Paul and Barnabas were merely passing through Perga to get to Pisidian Antioch at the request and guidance of Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus had family in the region, and it is believed that he sent letters of recommendation with Paul to aid his passage and stay. Paul and Barnabas may have said, hey, what would you suggest for a place that we could go and preach the gospel? I mean, you're a believer now. This is amazing. Well, I think you ought to go up to the city of the Antioch. I've got family there. I can set you up. Go up there and preach the gospel. I think that might be a pretty cool reason. It's the truth. I don't know. Now, it's important for us to get our geography straight. Some of you might be thinking, didn't Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch before coming to Cyprus? Has their journey already come full circle? Have they returned to the place they just left because we're talking about an Antioch? The answer is no. There were actually several cities called Antioch in the region. They were named after the 13 Seleucid kings who reigned over the Syrian Empire from 280 B.C. to 65 B.C. 
The Seleucid kings were referred to as Antio, oh goodness, Antiochus, Antiochus. Similar to how the Egyptian kings were called Pharaoh, and Roman emperors were called Caesar, Antiochus. At least two cities uh, known as Antioch are mentioned in the New Testament, or more specifically in the book of Acts. Sproul argues for a third, but I could not find it. I looked, I spent two hours trying to find it. I couldn't find it. One point I just said, you're just chasing rabbits. Get back to the text. I do that. I chase rabbits sometimes. Now, the two that are plain to see are in the scriptures in the book of Acts in the New Testament are Syrian Antioch, which is where the first Gentile church was planted. That's where that church is that sent Paul and Barnabas out. That's Syrian Antioch. And then we have Pisidian Antioch, which was located in Galatia. So this is a different Antioch. Pisidian Antioch was located on the east-west highway between Ephesus and Syria. It was colonized by the Romans in 25 BC and became an important trade route. It was populated by a lot of merchants, it had like strip malls set up on the highway. And it even had a really extraordinarily large Jewish community. According to Josephus, the ancient historian, over 2,000 Jewish families moved to the city of Antioch in 200 BC. Now, Paul came to the city about 250 years later. Do the math. How many Jewish families were in the city of Antioch now after 250 years of them settling there? Thousands and thousands and thousands. And I think this is one of the primary reasons why Paul and Barnabas went to the city in Antioch. There were a lot of Jews there, which meant that there were a lot of synagogues that they could visit and preach in. And if you know Paul's commission and his heart, it was to preach first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. His ministry, gospel ministry, is characterized by that. He always went into synagogues and he always preached to Jews he wanted to honor the Lord in his commission. That's what God had told him. Preach first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You're going to give both. You're going to preach to both, but start with the Jew. And so there were a lot of Jews in this place. Lots of synagogues. Verse 14 tells us that when the Sabbath came, Paul and Barnabas went into one of the synagogues and they sat right down, kicked it back. What up? They just went in there and sat down like a visitor would come in and sit down at this church. They just came in and sat down, made themselves at home. Now, it was customary to grant visiting rabbis such as Paul the right to address the synagogue. I suspect that Paul and Barnabas may have even visited the synagogue leader during the previous week to introduce themselves and maybe show their credentials. Paul had been trained by the famous leading rabbi, Gamaliel. Gamaliel, I don't know. Gamaliel was one of the most honored and respected rabbis of the day. He was immensely popular. The Jewish people adored him as many American folks adore Billy Graham. The guy was big. To be trained by Gamaliel was a high honor and privilege. Local rabbis would have been chomping at the bit to have one of his students come and speak to their congregation. It would have been a high honor. Oh, you're from Gamaliel? Dude, you're on next Sunday. 
You go in right after we pre sing the priest song, do the catechism, you know, we do the offering, boom, then you're up. Here's your money. Oh, they would have been stoked to have a guy like this. And then along comes Paul, the super student of Gamaliel. And he was the prize student of Gamaliel. Paul was a brilliant, brilliant rabbi, so well-versed in the Old Testament, and more importantly, well-versed in the gospel. Now, he came in with Barnabas and sat down. Number 15, verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. The order here suggests that the worship service began in typical fashion. The synagogue leaders began to recite uh, the Shema, which is an ancient uh, prayer and profession of the Jewish faith. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. I love it. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's the Shema. Of course it was added to it in the centuries after this. They added it and broadened it. And Jennifer Rogers would tell you it's quite long now. But after reciting the Shema, there would have been additional prayers offered. And, and then the leaders would read a portion from the law, right? From maybe the Decalogue or maybe the extended law. And then they would read a portion from the prophets. After the readings came the teaching, which in most cases was based on the text that it had just read. Verse 15 shows us that after the scriptures were read, the leadership had someone either pass a note or ask Paul and Barnabas if they'd like to teach. The note or messenger whispered, brothers, call them brothers. If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. This is the time. Take the pulpit. Now this is where we'll stop. <laughs> I love it. It's like Cliff. Right? I love the cliffhanger. You don't have so much time every Sunday. It's kind of the bummer about it, right? I'll preach for three hours if you'll let me. <laughs> do it, yeah. When I do it, you'll kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Yeah, we'll pick up. We'll, we'll definitely pick up next week because we are going to begin to examine and study and apply this marvelous, mind-blowing, incredible biblical sermon that he preached. I want to encourage you, though, to read ahead. Man, don't just, okay, that's it. I got my inoculation for the week. Huh? Phil gave me the shot. I'm good. No, by tomorrow, you'll forget what you heard. You'll be sinning again or whatever it is. I know me. I preach it. Four o'clock today, I got an appointment with stupidity. <laughs> right? I want to encourage you to go ahead in the scriptures and read the sermon and take some notes on it. Be prepared as you come in next Sunday. Lord willing, he brings me back, doesn't strike me down. 
or come back and return or whatever it is he does, come in prepared to worship him through the reading, teaching, application of his word. Now before, I'd like to close with some thoughts, before taking communion, I want you to think about, I want you to think about your relationships. People you know and love, people you know and don't love, People you work with, love them, but you tell Tiny love. Whatever. Think about your relationships. Think about the people you know. Think about your spouse if you have one. Think about your fiance if you have one. <laughs> think about your girlfriend. Think about your BFF. Think about your face. Don't think about them. Girlfriend. Think about, think about your relationships. If there is anyone in your life that you need to be reconciled to, do you need to apologize to someone? Do you need to accept an apology and forgive someone? I want to challenge you to not only pray about your relationships or that particular situation, but I want to challenge you to do something about it. The time has come. Humble yourself. Make an effort this week to make things right with that loved one or friend. Forgive your spouse. Forgive your sibling. Forgive your mom or dad. Forgive that coworker. Forgive your boss. If you're the offender, seek to make things right. Make a heartfelt apology to those that you've harmed, that you've hurt. Be like Christ this week who poured out his precious blood to wash away your sins, my sins, into what? To reconcile us to the Father. I was thinking about these things the other day. About two years ago, I completely jacked up my sister, my blood sister. There's no 